0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: After all she had done for him, this was how he repaid her? She hadn't wanted to admit it to herself before, but she was in love with the man, once a boy. Seeing him now with his beautiful wife and children, she recognized that she was jealous. He was an impoverished baker's son when she met him. Why had she made it her life's mission to improve his circumstances? By any normal measure, he was beneath her. Nevertheless, she had courted the favor of a king, conquered a kingdom, and slain a monster, all for him. Recalling these feats only led her to bristle once more with anger. She was normally willing to forgive his transgressions, but now his actions could not be taken lightly. He would pay for his betrayal, Perhaps she would bring the castle down upon the family's heads. Maybe she could go to one of her sisters and bring back a terrible, disfiguring concoction to plant in his food. As impressive as her blessings upon the household were, her curses would be the stuff of legends. The cat rose from her place on the windowsill and began to stalk toward the family. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Tales. Today I'm sharing the story of Puss in Boots, the dashing feline with improbable footwear. Today's episode is based upon the earliest written versions of the story from French and Italian authors of the 16th and 17th centuries. The tales on this podcast are dark, sometimes scary, and full of adult themes. The original Puss in Boots stories contain fraud, theft, murder, and heartbreak. Please exercise caution for children under 13. If you want to hear more tales, you can find all of Parcast's podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked how to help the show. If you enjoy tales, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review online. The Arne Thompson Uther Classification of Folk Tales is a database which attempts to catalog distinct, recurring tales and their many variations. Supernatural Helpers, a broad category in the database, addresses the donor archetype, the character that arrives in the story to help the hero on their quest. In many ways, donors are the true heroes of the stories they feature in, with more cunning and skill than the protagonist. Such is the case with Puss in Boots, an animal guide so effective that she becomes the center of the story. First recorded in 1550 by Venetian author Giovanni Francesco Straparola, this version of the tale was entitled Constantino Fortunato, which means Lucky Constantino. At this point, the tale was still named after its central male figure. But by 1697, the story had spread to Paris, where author Charles Perrault created his own version, entitling it La Maître Chat ou Les chats beautés, which means The Master Cat or The Booted Cat. Clearly, the character of the cat had overshadowed all else in the story. As the tale made its way into English-speaking countries, it eventually became Puss in Boots, it is thoroughly unique when compared to its fairy tale counterparts. With the cat dominating the story, the traditional prince-princess romance is pushed to the background. And as mentioned, our donor character, the cat, proves much more adept at overcoming obstacles than the prince. Even stranger, this tale has never had a happy ending. For all of her cleverness, the cat meets only with sorrow. Antera the cat couldn't remember how long she had belonged to Fioriana, at least since the woman was a teenager. Seeing Fioriana now, an old woman, dying, she realized how much time had passed. (coughs) Fioriana lay in her sickbed surrounded by her three sons, Dusolino, Tessifone, and Costantino. They were all teary-eyed. Their mother was the only parent they had ever known. It had not been an overly compassionate household. The boys fought constantly, and Fioriana had become a bit of a screamer as a result. But they were family, huddled around Fioriana's bed in a small room, one of only three in the house. It was a hovel, in truth, without much furniture beyond a table and chairs, a fire pit and the beds. Though she came from the family of a merchant, Fioriana now left her own children as paupers. A baker, she had squandered her inheritance on an ill-conceived cake shop in the market. In a town full of bakers, no one needed another stall of sugary treats. It wouldn't be long now. Blood came up with that last cough. Fioriana lifted a shaky hand, pointing it toward the corner. Antera rolled her eyes. The woman was always so dramatic. Tessifone followed her gesture and arose to walk to the corner of the room and find a wooden board and kneading trough. This was all that was left of the family business. With a raspy voice, Fioriana explained I regret that I have little left to bequeath to you, my boys. To Dusolino, my oldest, I leave my kneading trough. May you have better luck in baking than I! She next left the board to Tessifone. Antera couldn't help but notice that Fioriana did a double take when her eyes fell upon Costantino. She had clearly forgotten he was even there. The cat had always felt somewhat bad for poor Costantino, the youngest of the brothers. After raising the first two, his mother had the least energy for him, and often she neglected him altogether. He wasn't the most impressive boy by any means, all bones, with a shaggy head of hair and a goofy big nose. But he always remembered to refill Antera's water dish, so the cat owed him more than any of the others. <sniffs> the fond memory of this led Antera to make an involuntary noise. This drew Fioriana's gaze. Her eyes perked up as much as they could in her current condition. The cat! shouted Fioriana. Costantino will inherit the cat! And Tara stood up with a start. <coughs> the nerve! To be offered up as easily as a piece of baking equipment! Fioriana had clearly forgotten the cat was even there, forgotten the years she had warmed her lap, kept her home free of vermin, scratched the boys when they got out of hand and Tara's gaze fell upon Dussolino and Tessifone, who giggled behind their mother's back at Costantino's luck. They all knew this was a last thought, a flippant gesture. <laughs> and as luck would have it, it would be Fioriana's last, as a terrible coughing fit overtook her. She thrashed against the straw bed, kicking the animal skin to the floor. Tessifone moved quickly to hold her down, There were a few more haggard spasms of phlegm, then a final, deep inhale, and Furiana collapsed, dead. Her eyes looked up to the ceiling, gray and aimless. A beat passed. Then Dusolino and Tessifone jumped to their feet. They scooped up their inheritance, making their way to the front door, and Tera and Costantino followed them to the common room, with Costantino inquiring about the brother's destination. They smiled, saying they were off to the neighbors to sell the board and the kneading trough to see what they could get for them. They wished him luck with his new pet. Costantino stood there, stunned. Antera did the only thing she could think to do, which was to gently rub up against his leg. He reached down, petting her, then turned to his mother's room. Costantino borrowed a shovel from the town hall, working alone to bury his mother in the town cemetery. The priest had recently died of the plague, so it fell on him to say the prayer as well. Watching from a nearby tree, the cat was moved by this effort. As the boy dug, she noticed the sinew of his arms, the way his hair hung down in locks over his forehead. When he wiped the perspiration from his face, tears still in his eyes. She nearly swooned. She suddenly realized that she was beginning to fall for this young man. His prayer was rather eloquent, thanking God for providing him with a mother who cared enough to feed the boys and keep a roof over their head. And Tara thought this was rather sweet of him. Fioriana had in reality been much more selfish than he was describing. She continued to watch him with admiration that night as he cooked his usual dinner of rice noodles. They were both shocked by the return of Dusolino and Tisifone, who arrived with such noise and merriment that it would seem they had forgotten their mother had died not six hours ago. Their arms were full with salt cakes which they dumped onto the table in large piles. and Terra watched Costantino out of the corner of her eye, seeing that his mouth watered at the sight of these treats. He looked down at his noodles with shame. It would seem that the brothers had traded the cooking utensils for these baked goods, which they happily bit into with fervor. Dussolino smugly asked how the inheritance of the cat was working out. Costantino blew up at the other two, complaining that he had to bury their mother by himself. Dussolino responded by throwing a pebble from his shoe at Costantino's head. Antera could hardly believe the audacity of these fools. How had she lived under the same roof with them for so long? She struggled to remember the point at which they had grown from rowdy but sweet boys into these selfish brutes. She continued to feel for Costantino, who was not even offered one of his brothers' cakes. Seeing that his brothers had no sympathy for him, the youngest hung his head low, placing his noodles in a wooden bowl and moving to his bedroom. Antera watched from the dresser as Costantino slurped his noodles. He looked out the window as lost as she was, unsure of what to do next. As the breeze tussled his hair, she was again moved by his subtle good looks and compassionate heart. She decided it was time. Standing up on the dresser, she opened her mouth, strained her eyes, and tapped into the other realm. Bright, shining white light burst forth from her face. Costantino dropped his dinner and climbed to the back of his bed, shocked. Costantino, bellowed the cat.
0: Do not fear me. I am the fairy that has watched over you since you were a boy. He was intrigued, though
1: still terrified, moving only slightly from behind the bed. She coaxed him out further by telling him that she had a plan to improve their circumstances. He asked what she would have of him. She thought about it
0: then smiled with her reply. I require of you only two things, that you do whatever I say, and that you acquire for me a pair of boots.
1: After this break, we'll see how the cat gets her boots.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.
1: And now, back to the story. Antera stalked through the woods, her new boots on her back legs and a sack held in her paw. She reflected on the previous day how Costantino, once he got over the shock that his inherited cat was in fact a magical being, had scrounged the village for material to make the cat her boots. She wasn't sure why she had asked for them, Maybe it was just her fairy instinct, never offer a mortal something for nothing. Maybe she felt inspired by the display of masculinity he had put on when burying his mother and wanted a part of that for herself. Or maybe, now that she had revealed herself as a fairy, she wanted to stop walking around on all fours and feel like a person again. She chose to retain her cat form, however. It was no easy thing to change from one form to the other. Costantino had finally found some leather to work with after the old man next door gave him a pair of human boots that a dog had chewed. He then borrowed tools from the same old man and was able to cut the shape of a smaller boot from the pair. He labored to sew the pieces together, adding soles made from wood. They were unsightly, but it was the effort that counted and comfort wasn't of much importance to a fairy anyways. It was now Antera's turn to deliver on her promise. Her plan was a complex one, something that a regular man might take years to string together, but for one such as her, she thought of it in an afternoon, the affairs of mortals to her as simple and mundane as a children's puzzle. She opened her sack, which was full with thistle and grain plucked from a nearby farm, placed upwind of a rabbit burrow, the scent soon attracted several young hares. One in particular made the bold choice of heading right for the sack, sticking his small head into the opening. The animal was bagged with no difficulty at all, and soon the cat was out on the road, hitching a ride on a wagon to Pavia. She arrived at the palace of the Duke of Milan, a stately but still beautiful structure on the banks of the Ticino River. Antera had performed a number of favors for the duke's father when he ran afoul of the pope, and so she was given entrance to the palace without issue. The duke greeted her with courtesy, though he was smart enough to have some reservations about a fairy in his court. They could often as not spell trouble, but the cat simply opened her sack onto the floor of the palace, presenting the duke with the dead hair. A gift, she said, from the Marquis of Carabas. The duke gave her a funny look. Who? he asked. She smiled, explaining that he was a wealthy lord from the Bonaventura region north of Bologna. He nodded curtly, clearly pretending to know what she was talking about. She knew that a man's fear of seeming unintelligent often clouded his ability to sense deception. The Duke asked her to thank the Marquis, and with that, she was on her way, satisfied with the initial phase of her plan. She stayed in the North for a fortnight, "'hunting constantly for game of all kinds. "'She returned to the palace frequently, "'presenting the duke with gift after gift, "'each time giving credit to the Marquis of Carabas. "'It grieved her somewhat to spend so much time away from Costantino, "'but she had told him before she left "'that he would need to be patient.' and the duke's feasts soon became among the most luxurious in all of northern Italy, known for their selection of fresh game. The duke thanked the cat and her master profusely and said that should they ever require his services, they had only but to ask. Satisfied, Antera returned to Costantino's village. She found him in the yard of the old man, having taken up work as his gardener, his physique and overall presence had only improved in her absence, the previously unwieldy boy now growing into a young man. When he saw her arrive, he greeted her not with disdain or suspicion for having abandoned him for a month, but with joy. He asked how the past weeks had treated her. She was flattered that he would offer such concern for a cat and assured him that she had been fast at work on upholding her end of the bargain. And though she considered offering some comment suggesting she had longed for him in their time apart she thought better of it she was a different species after all now she said was the time for him to honor his second promise he must do whatever she commanded he was to go north immediately to pavia where he was to bathe tomorrow morning in the ticino river near the palace he initially responded with concern not wanting to abandon the garden or to go such a long way for a simple bath. But Antera promised it would be worth his time and reminded him of his own promise. After a day of traveling together, the duo arrived in Pavia, where Antera revealed the exact spot in the river that Costantino was to bathe. She watched discreetly as he removed his clothing. The month of working in the garden had treated him well. Her heart aflutter, she pulled herself away from her master and traveled up the river, where she found that the Duke and his court were traveling down the river on their barge, exactly as she knew they would be. Once they arrived closer to shore, the cat sensed her opportunity, rushing from the tree line and out onto the bank. Help, help, she cried out, Their heads turned in her direction immediately.
0: My master, the Marquis of Carabas, has been betrayed. The
1: duke, recognizing his friend the cat, ordered his men to dock the barge. He walked ashore with his entourage, which Antera was surprised to see included his daughter, Lucia. Her beauty was known throughout the kingdom, and immediately the cat dreaded bringing her to Costantino but her plan was too far in motion to cease now. She went ahead and explained to the Duke that her master had been traveling with hired bodyguards to finally meet the Duke in person, but they had betrayed him, leaving him without steed, gold, nor an article of clothing. The Duke, nobleman that he was, immediately ordered his entourage to follow Antera and assist the Marquis. Costantino, not used to having access to a large body of water, was rather enjoying his bath. The cat felt a little guilty when he turned with a start to find an entire royal court on the bank behind him. She apologized, immediately explaining that the Duke and his men had come to help him after he was betrayed. To his credit, Costantino caught on quickly, immediately bowing to the Duke and offering him thanks. Only Antero was attentive enough to catch the quick look exchanged between the naked young man and the beautiful princess. The duke had Costantino dried and clothed, and before long they were all aboard the barge on the way to the estate. One of the duke's extravagant feasts was put on in Costantino's honor. Of course, both he and Antera maintained that he was, in fact, the Marquis of Carabas. The cat worked diligently, seated next to the king. She spoke of the Marquis's great landholdings and animal pastures, how his castle stood firm as a shield against invasion from the Venetians to the east. The duke listened enthusiastically and said that he would love to visit the kingdom to see whether they might be able to work together more closely in the future. The cat smiled, nodding in agreement. This is what she had wanted, but this would go quite badly should her deception ever be uncovered. It was then that she looked down the table to where Costantino was sitting. Much to the cat's frustration, the princess had been placed next to him. He seemed to be entertaining her with some sort of spoon trick. The two looked as thick as thieves, and Tara's stomach sank. Since when was the boy smooth with women? It appeared she wasn't the only one who had noticed his budding masculinity. She spent the next few days scrambling to make Costantino look good, as the Duke's caravan traveled to the Marquis' kingdom, and Tara was always a step ahead. Any farm, orchard, or pasture along the road, the cat would run into, screaming that the inhabitants were in danger. She said that the Venetians were coming to pillage the land, but if the villagers swore that they were loyal to the Marquis de Carabas, the Venetians knew doge, then they would be spared. Sure enough, for each new tract of land that the duke passed, there was an inhabitant there who swore the field belonged to the Marquis de Carabas. The duke was becoming more and more impressed. So too was his daughter. It was not long before Antera, running ahead as always, came upon the most important structure in this region. It was a castle, 25 feet high, its parapets spiked and imposing. This was where the cat was going to say the Marquis lived. And indeed, by the time she was through, It would be Costantino's new home. The only problem was its current inhabitant. Antera knew him well, for he was old, and he was known throughout the land. He was an ogre, and he did not like visitors. After this short break, we'll follow the cat into the ogre's castle. Now back to the story. Each hair on the cat's body stood on end as she crept through the long, dank hallways of the ogre's castle and Tara expected to find the brute around every corner. She was sure he was watching her. Though the halls were full of echoes, a distinct low growl began to build. She squinted, beginning to see something emerge in the darkness ahead. She braced herself, ready to use magic if necessary. The figure began to move quicker and quicker until finally the ogre emerged from the darkness. Her ears and fur flew back with the force of the monster's snarl. His face was a contorted knot of features, a bulbous nose, jagged brow, twirling, twisted ears. What are you doing in my castle? growled the ogre. And Terra tried to appear confident, standing up straight in her boots. Clearing her throat, she claimed that she was a traveler passing through and that she wished to pay her respects to the lord of these lands. The ogre eyed her with suspicion, though she could tell he was lonely. With a grunt, he relented motioning for her to follow him deeper into the castle. She did so against her instincts. They arrived inside of a dining hall, festooned with ancient decor and cobwebs to match. At one end of the room, a fire roared. This was the only light in the entire structure. The cat was seated next to the ogre at one end of his long table. Before them was a feast though a good deal less impressive than the Dukes had been the night before. And Tara was displeased to find that the rumors of the ogre being a man-eater were true. There were no vegetables in sight, only grilled human arms and legs, and large chunks of doughy bread. Not wanting to offend, the cat gingerly bit into a piece of meat stripping off the smallest of pieces and chewing slowly. Pleased, the ogre resumed his own eating. After a time, she attempted
0: conversation. Excuse me, Sir Ogre, but I heard a tale that you are a shapeshifter. Could this possibly be true? She knew well that it was.
1: She had seen the ogre perform the trick some years prior at a festival. The ogre scowled sitting his meat down and wiping his hands on his vest. She thought perhaps she had offended or that he was onto her. But there was a sudden flash of light and a puff of smoke. And Tara literally jumped out of her boots, clinging to the stone above the fireplace behind her. Before her very eyes, the ogre had transformed, becoming a lion. She hated lions. However, she thought of Costantino, and not wanting to let him down, she returned to her seat, pulling her boots back on. Though she hadn't expected a lion, she knew the ogre would first change into something fearsome, and so she could now trick him.
0: Most impressive,
1: she gulped, lapping some nearby grog. But you're already quite large... I expected you might be able to become a large animal. Surely you can't transform into something small. The ogre quickly returned to his ogrely form. Why didn't he choose something more pleasant as his base appearance? The ogre glowered at her once more, then spat. Of course I can. I can turn into whatever I want. Without a second thought, the fool reduced himself to the form of a mouse climbing around on his own plate. Not hesitating, Antera reached out with a claw. She sliced the mouse in two, its pieces mixing with the questionable meat on the table. As the ogre's body returned to its original form, the cat was rather disgusted, if not pleased, to find that he was cut straight in half, his intestines spilling out onto the table. And Tara grimaced, wishing this were the worst thing on the table. Her mission accomplished. The cat pushed away from the carnage, preparing herself for an incantation. As she had done in Costantino's room weeks before, she focused, tapping into the energies of the realm from whence her people came. White light spilled from her eyes, her mouth, as she shouted in the language of her people that was long forgotten on Earth. The light covered every corner of the castle, revealing the horrors in each room. It glowed until it filled each space, blinding were anyone to look at it. But then the light ceased, disappearing as soon as it had arrived. In its place, the castle was transformed, a luxurious home fit for a marquis. Gone were the cobwebs, the corpses, the dead ogre. She coughed up a hairball. Within it, the bite of human flesh. Ugh. Exhausted, it was all the cat could do to put on a happy face, moving to the front room of the castle and drawing the door open. Behind it was, of course, the Duke, "'Costantino and that ever-present princess. "'Antera greeted them heartily, "'and the look on Costantino's face was worth the trouble. "'Never had he been in such a place before. "'As the Duke and his family journeyed further inside, "'Costantino pulled the cat into a corner. "'Cat!' he smiled. "'This is amazing! Is this truly our new home?' "'She nodded happily, and he pulled her into a hug.' If I am to be a Marquis, then you are my chief servant now and forever. And if you pass, your passing will be like the death of the Pope himself. He promised her a gold coffin, a huge procession, mourning for weeks. This was all well and good, but of course, Antera wanted more. She wanted him. And yet, as she saw him retreat down the hallway, chasing after the princess, she knew that what she wanted could never be. It was but a few months before the wedding was held in Milan. The Duke agreed to have the Marquis of Carabas married to his daughter Lucia. And with this marriage, Costantino's kingdom officially became a part of the Duchy of Milan. In the months and years that followed, Costantino continued to treat Antera with the utmost respect. She had her own quarters. Servants were ordered never to disturb her. Whatever mice or other treats she could want were always hers. But as his responsibilities grew and children began to be born, she saw less and less of Costantino. It was a large castle, and eventually there were days where they didn't see one another at all. After a time, those days became weeks, then months, then a time came when the Marquis forgot about the cat completely. She had tried to take this in stride, to be content with the roof over her head and the amenities available to her, but on the days she did see the Marquis with his wife or his children or all of them together, she couldn't handle it. If not for her loyalty to the young man he once was, she would have left for a new life. Eventually, her anger boiled over. All she had left was his promise, his promise that none would be honored in death more than she. Removing her boots, she entered the courtyard garden one morning, finding a comfortable spot in the sun. But instead of curling up in her usual way, she stretched her body out as if in rigor, keeping stiff. Turning on her back, she closed her eyes simulating death. It was not long before Lucia found her in the courtyard. She ordered a servant to summon the Marquis, and soon he arrived in the garden, asking what was the matter. Your cat, said the Marchioness. I am so sorry, I think she has passed. The cat expected devastation, expected immediate action. Surely Marquis Costantino would call the guard, have her remains treated with the utmost respect in the catacombs of the Duomo di Firenze, have a processional planned from his home village to the foot of the church. But no, he laughed. He actually (laughs) laughed. He summoned a servant telling her to grab the cat by the tail and fling her out the window. And Tara was devastated. She would curse him. She would put an end to all she had wrought for his sake. Jumping to her feet, she accosted her former love.
0: Bastard, you promised, you promised a gold coffin and a funeral like none before.
1: Both the Marquis and his wife were taken aback. In truth, they had forgotten the cat could talk as it had been many years since she had done so. Magic quickly fades from mortal minds.
0: Where is the boy I fell in love with?
1: Asked Antera.
0: The boy who buried his mother by himself in a plot of land not worthy of the lowest serf.
1: This truly gave him pause. She could see his mind begin to work, see the memories coming back to him. Tears came to his eyes. He tried to hide them from Lucia. Marquis, asked the lady. Costantino, corrected the cat. That was his name. She moved to his feet, looking up at him, square in the eye.
0: And he is lucky. Lucky, lucky, Costantino. Lucky to have inherited me all those years ago. And lucky that I am too stupid with love to exact my revenge now.
1: Both the Marquis and his wife jumped back at the cat's final outburst. She turned, bounding across the garden to her room. And packed her things, stopping last at the boots. Her first instinct was to destroy them, to throw them down on the marquis's head. But no, they were hers, her payment for her services. Never give a mortal something for nothing. Her boots on, she took her bag, and with a final hiss, left for the road. Too long had she toiled, serving a race of ungrateful people. Though she had received the boots as payment for her services, She had received nothing in return for her heart. Puss in Boots became a modern fairy tale classic, though its star has perhaps dimmed somewhat in the modern age. While the tale never received the Disney feature film treatment, there is of course the DreamWorks animation film Puss in Boots and its accompanying television series. Both are a spin-off of the more popular Shrek franchise, itself a send-up of classic fairy tales. That version of the character is almost completely separated from its storybook origins, however. More a parody of its voice actor Antonio Banderas, the DreamWorks Puss in Boots leaves audiences unaware of the character's dark, tragic history. But there is much to learn from the original story, as the cat's tale brings up themes of economic disparity, class dishonesty, and the changing nature of long-term relationships. As in our version, the original Italian Puss in Boots is a female. For many years, and still today, women can see themselves in the role of the cat, forced to support from the background while men receive an unfair portion of the glory. It's hard not to hear Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walkin' as the cat leaves her man behind. Thanks for listening to Tales. If you want to listen to more episodes of Tales, you can find all of Parcast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Some listeners have been asking how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. Join me in two weeks for another dark and surprising fairy tale. Tales was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Tales is written by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.